This is Soundtrack, a music podcast about the music that impacts our lives. Every episode is a conversation of how music has shaped and influenced one's life, because music is the soundtrack to everyone's story. Soundtrack is hosted by Kyle Lichty. Hey everyone, I'm here with Kurt Rappert. How's it going? It's going great. It's a good day today. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Definitely. We've known each other for 11 years. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. I was thinking it was like seven or eight, but 11 it is. <laughs> we we actually met through our friend Paul. And it, I don't know if you remember this. This is how my memory works. But we played Ultimate Frisbee at John Ball. Oh, Park. yes, for sure. And I think your family came as well. Yeah. We used to play every Sunday at three o'clock for like two years. We did that. It was a great tradition. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how we met. But through that time, we've gotten to know each other even more. Paul's wedding and all sorts of other things that has happened over that time. And we've gotten coffee and mm-hmm. all that good stuff. And we're here now. So you're born and raised in Berrien Springs, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And talk about what that was like to live there. Yeah, it's an interesting town. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of what I'm into these days is because of where I grew up. You know, it was a small farming town, about 4,000 people. So we had our high school, my senior, our high school had 400 students in it. About a third of those were kids and migrant farm workers. We also had a Seventh-day Adventist university in town. So there was like a little bit of like religious diversity, but then that they had a lot of international students. So in my little tiny hometown, we had a Mexican grocery store. We had an Asian market. There's a vegan restaurant, you know, and I, so I think it was cool before it was cool. Yeah. It was like before it was cool, but growing up in Bering Springs, it was like this rural place in a lot like a farm town, but with all of this diversity in it, which from an early age exposed me to a lot of things that still stick with me today in terms of what inspires me to do the work that I do. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't Muhammad Ali? Muhammad yeah. Ali grew up in Berrien Springs. Yeah. I remember trick-or-treating at his house. We would go, <laughs> we couldn't go to his door because he had a big gate in a long driveway. Sure. So you ring the bell, but he, instead of giving candy, he would give away little finger magic tricks. Like that was his shtick. <laughs> And so like little sleight of hand magic tricks, but yeah, he would come speak to our school. You'd run into him at McDonald's. Like it was kind of wild to have the greatest of all time be in my hometown. (laughs) That's nuts. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Tell me your first musical memory. My first musical memories are in church. I remember going to like gospel concerts at the church and, you know, being a kind of a snotty kid in the back, not really like super into it, but my mom was super musical. She's the one that I think an appropriate word is forced. She forced us to take piano lessons and I had a really great piano teacher and and took piano lessons all the way up until when my mom let me quit when I was in seventh grade. (laughs) And it wasn't, you know, I remember that my musical memories pre seventh grade are really riding around in the truck with my dad, listening to the radio, the stuff that would be, you know, he had a, he had a tape of the beach boys and like all these soul songs that I loved. 
and he would put that on. But otherwise, it was whatever was on the radio is what we listened to. So I do have some some early pop sentimentality for yeah. what's on the radio. And it's kind of funny to like talk to my kids about music now and share stories about like trying to record a song on the radio on my stereo. These are things that they're never going to have to do. <laughs> but there, there wasn't a whole lot of draw or particular interest toward a typical genre or artist prior to middle school. That's when things started to pick up for me. As soon as I kind of got out of earshot of my parents, I was listening to hip hop and Metallica, Rage Against the Machine. We did a time capsule in seventh grade. When I opened it in 12th grade, my num- my favorite song in seventh grade was Regulators by Warren G, like, which is just a classic. I remember it primarily because it was one of the first music videos on MTV that I had ever seen. Okay. So like there was that like, at that point in my life, the music I listened to kind of coincided with the music videos that played on MTV as well, which isn't the case anymore for me. But <laughs> <laughs> back then, music videos is what put a song out there. Yeah. I'm just curious, was that MTV video the only reason what drew you in? Or was it because of what, culture or maybe friends? Yeah, I think that both kind of, it's interesting, I had two friend groups, and one of them is where I got into Metallica and Rage Against the Machine, and the other one is where I got into Warren G and all of those kinds of things. So it really was friends, I believe, but then I think that it was exciting at that time because MTV was really just kind of starting to blow up, and it was one of those, we had the channel on our cable station kind of reluctantly i don't think that my mom wanted it but we but then when we when i would get home from school and she would still be at work or whatever then it was kind of like all bets are off and so i could watch like an hour and a half of mtv (laughs) it had a pretty big influence on what i was into and what i was interested in kind of exploring more yeah do you remember any other music videos that stand out man i so this was a music video at the time, but like, I, I still remember having the, again, the cassette tape of MC Hammer's album where can't touch this too legit to quit. I remember being a little bit obsessed with salt and pepper. I remember their first videos partly because they were just like visually stunning. But yeah, just I would get home from school and turn it on and I would I would really listen to whatever was on. It wasn't so much about genre at that point. It's just like what's on MTV and then matching up like the music in my head to the images that they were putting out as artists was always kind of interesting to me. How do they visually represent it? Again, my memories for music start primarily in high school, but certainly there was a lot of music before that. Yeah. I'm curious kind of going back to the piano it seemed like you were ready to move on Mm -hmm. from it Mm -hmm. despite how great of a teacher you had and uh, your mom do you still have an appreciation for those years where you did learn how to play the piano oh of course matter of fact i think it's one of my few regrets in life is that i quit it was hard. My mom was really, she made me practice every day and she was pretty relentless about it. And I had recitals and it, it was not my favorite part of childhood, 
but I'm so thankful for like that base knowledge of music and how it comes together. And I still appreciate any songs with piano in particular in it, as well as classical music. I still will listen to a lot of that because I came to appreciate its beauty and how complicated it was and how difficult it was to master and play. So I carry a lot of that appreciation. I, I, I have a piano upstairs that I just tinker with, but I, I am kind of sad that I can't sit down and play it like yeah. I once could. So you mentioned already music, hard rock, Metallica, Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, and you mentioned some friends. Mm-hmm. Is that where that influence came from? Yeah, it was. But, you know, and also I played sports in high school. So like, those were like great things for hype before the game. You know, you just put on evil empire and then you're ready to just go out and play some basketball. <laughs> and this is a little bit of a vulnerable thing to share. You know, one of the, some of those. So if you, if you go a little bit further on that genre, you get into some pretty racist stuff if you're not careful. And I do remember a moment, which is where I kind of parted with like the hardcore scene or whatever where my friends were starting to listen to music that was, that really was clearly racist and it was impacting their relationships with other students in our school. And they started to like separate off. And that was the moment where I was just like, I like this music. It's great for getting me hyped up for basketball, but, and Rage Against the Machine is, is different, right? Like it's, it's in favor of like justice and movement, whereas some of that other stuff was really like entrenching my friends. And so then there was kind of a parting of ways, which is when I like flipped over a little bit more into hip hop and things like that. And there wasn't a whole lot of friends in high school where that was the case. Although I do remember when Wu-Tang's Up for the 36 Chambers came out and I was a junior in high school and it was an integrated high school. And the black kids on my team would be listening to that hyping up before the game. And I would be listening to Metallica and like looking back in hindsight, it's kind of a fascinating thing to think through like what music was kind of touching our lives and influencing us as young people. Yeah. We've been talking about Rage Against the Machine. Did you have any idea at that time? As None. A- <laughs> okay. <laughs> I had no idea. It was loud and it was energetic and it was like a way for me to blow off steam and those lyrics still live in me. I know I can still recall most of them, but I wasn't really thinking critically about what they were actually saying or what they were trying to promote. It was just a perfect backdrop for adolescent aggression. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good way to say it. Yeah, right, right, right. Is that still something that you listen to? I, I'm sure you still connect with it, but mm-hmm. is it something that you resonate with? in terms of the hard rock. Yeah, there I have a tradition with my kids. First like warm day of spring, we'll drive around the neighborhood with the windows down listening to ACDC. I mean, that's we do that every year. <laughs> and it's kind of just a fun thing. But yeah, there's certain moments in my life now where I've, I I need to call up some of that energy, some of that like angsty energy where I'll still put I'll still throw on Evil Empire or or the Black album. I don't listen to it near as much as I used to. Yeah. I before this music festival, Cornerstone Music Festival that my brother and I would always go to. And that's where I did kind of fall in love with like live 
punk rock and kind of hardcore music because then you're in a group and it was like this cathartic experience that you did together and you end the show and you're all sweaty and like you can't talk anymore because you're yelling and screaming and there is a part of me that thinks that I probably need that in my life every now and then like a purifying like just go to a concert and just sweat through your shirt listening to loud music but yeah (laughs) I haven't done that in a while (laughs) I feel like you might have been before this band but you know me without you oh sure i we saw them live a couple times at cornerstone but they were just getting started like it was like right at the beginning but like incredible live show incredible live show and they would always just be packed right from the beginning they had just like a really loyal following yeah so i I saw them at least twice back in the day what was that like my faith journey along with that, like it was this Christian rock festival and my brother and I would go there and, and we would be like kind of looking for the bands that were Christians, but who are actually saying something meaningful. And I remember that feeling that about me without you as well as like Pedro the lion and things. So it was part of the reason why those experiences were so powerful is because we did kind of like coalesce around the lyrics. We knew them all and everybody would be singing them. And it was like, and there would be a thousand people in the tent. And my favorite show that I saw there at Cornerstone, though, is this band named Roadside Monument. Mm. It, a matter of fact, it is, if I had to pick a live show that I've been to of all time, that was my favorite is when I saw them live at Cornerstone. It's like a combination of hardcore and what I would call math rock. Like it was like really elaborate guitar, like on loops and things. And instead of just like a gentle bass line, like the bass player, like almost played his bass like a guitar. Yeah. And I just remember they made a couple albums after their first one. They never really like grew as a group, but seeing them live at Cornerstone was out of this world. I mean, it's kind of one of those, like, even just like thinking about it and talking about it out loud. I I remember so clearly my brother and I like intentionally picked the spot where we, where we stood kind of in the middle right in between the speakers, not too close, but not too far away. Like, cause we're like, this is going to be the show. And then it ended up being exactly what we wanted. (laughs) Is it like an out of body? Oh yeah. My goodness. Yeah. If I think about some of the more powerful spiritual experiences in my life, there was this punk rock band named blaster, the rocket boy (laughs) who later changed his name to blaster, the rocket man after he got married And it was like this weird sci-fi horror punk rock mix. But it was the first show that I went to where I kind of allowed myself to like get in the mosh pit a little bit, get up on people's shoulders. And it actually was was a moment that I described as a spiritual moment in my life because I was able to just like let go and not worry what other people were thinking of me just enjoy the music, have fun, and just let the experience be what it was. And again, that happened with my younger brother. My younger brother, I owe a lot to him in terms of my musical influence, particularly on the punk and hardcore side. Yeah. My older brother is more of the alt-rock alt side. And then I got my sister who is always feeding me with pop gold. The, any pop music that I like, I owe it to my sister, which is, I think it's important to acknowledge that. Yeah. <laughs> pop music is still wonderful. I think of Harry Styles right now. Like, yeah. You can say what you want about One Direction and <laughs> him as a, even as a solo artist, but 
that latest new album. It's a solid piece of music. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, you know, we've talked before actually about Daft Punk. Oh yeah, sure. With Get Lucky Mm -hmm. and how that was pop gold too. It was. And it just, there's so many other examples of that. But unfortunately I think it's just, it's becoming more rare. Yeah. Yeah. To have pop music that's universally loved and, and translates across genre and, and culture. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned Pedro the Lion. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what made that one of your faves. And and it's not just Pedro, it's it's also Dave Bazan yeah. as a part of that. Yeah. Because he's had his solo yeah. records as well. And obviously I like the music. But I was attracted to his just honest lyricism. And I'm trying to think of the track on his first full length album. It's just so good. It's just so deep. The lyrics are so deep. And again, he was like, he was a Christian that was like asking questions and he was wondering about these things that he'd been taught right as I was kind of heading off to college. So like the timing of that was perfect. But I also loved the, the mix of like, it was, it was great songwriting and it was, but it also like would build up like it was a bit of like a hybrid type of music. It wasn't like all folksy, but it would like build up and he would scream every now and then. And yeah. it was it had an edge to it, both lyrically and musically. But it also was something that I could play in my room and my mom wasn't going to be like, turn that off kind of a thing. Right. right. Like, But I think I was most attracted to Pedro the Lion because of kind of my state in life was aligning with what he was doing and wrestling with as a person. Do you feel like you were asking those same questions? Oh, completely. And I was also asking a lot of questions about like, why is so much of this Christian music so awful? Like, I mean, it was terrible. We we would go to Cornerstone and there would be like 80 bands there and there were five that I would want to see. You know, by the time that I went, I think I went three times. By the time I went the last time, I was like, oh, okay, it's starting to catch up. People are like, they're making good music and saying things that are meaningful instead of having it all be kind of hyper-spiritualized and feeling like they had to work spiritual things into every song. It's like, no, you can just play a song and that's good enough. Or you could just talk about your anger and that's good enough. You don't have to like tie it back to something else. So in some ways it was the question really wasn't about should I be a Christian or not, but it was like, can I be authentically myself and swear, do whatever, and and also be a Christian? You know, like it, it was a lot of that. You know, I was 17, so it was, it yeah. was early questions <laughs> on the faith journey. Oh, that was <laughs> the same for me. Uh, yeah. So I get it. So I, I've seen Dave before mm-hmm. and I saw him with Peter Rollins. Oh, nice. Here in town. And I remember distinctively, so he did some songs with Peter Rollins doing his philosophical, Mm -hmm. you know. It's a nice combo. Yeah. And he did Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Ah. And he was screaming. Yeah. Right. The the chorus. That's right. Yeah, so he he would take a song and he would he would amplify it. Yeah, like he wasn't even seen into the mic, and yeah. the whole room. I mean, just yeah, it, it was. Yeah, it's jar- powerful. Like, kind of, it wasn't jarring, I would mm. say, but it, like it was definitely 
whoa. Yeah. Got your attention. Yeah. 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 That's what I liked about his music too, right? Is that he, he would take something and then just like add a little oomph to it. And he would even do on a couple of his EPs, he would, he would do a hymn and do the, put the same twist on it. So he's singing, be thou my vision in this like real humble, but then it just kind of slowly builds and changes over the course of the song and becomes something that transcends the, the hymn itself yeah. into like a, a full body expression of wondering or praise or whatever. Right. So fascinating. My favorite version of Hallelujah, though, is Jeff Buckley. Yeah. I mean, that, that hands down, okay. it almost made my top 10 list. <laughs> But it's not his song, so that's why I took it off. But boy, when Jeff Buckley does Hallelujah, yes. same thing. Like he he takes it up a notch from Leonard Cohen. Yeah. And just, I mean, his voice just goes so, his range is, is huge. But. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, do you know Malcolm Gladwell? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he did. That's actually how Paul Canoose and I became friends. He was an intern at The Other Way. Right. And then we decided to read The Tipping Point together. Okay. And we read it at the bitter end. <laughs> and I just actually texted him about it last week. I was just like, the rest is history. We just we would meet and talk about that book. And that's how my relationship with Paul started. That's awesome. <laughs> so he, he's he got a podcast called Revisionist History. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember why, but he kind of analyzes several different versions of that song oh really for for one of his episodes yeah i'm gonna have to check it out i'm gonna write it out <laughs> yeah he thought that you know everybody loves the jeff buckley one right and then there's those that want to stick with the original yeah so we're gonna stick with high school you're really beginning to open up with a lot of alternative music yeah and i'm just i like this mm -hmm. particularly myself and so i'm intrigued with The Cure, Depeche Mode, yeah. Ben Folds Five, yeah. and so many others, mm -hmm. uh, Beck, Bjork. Yeah. Where is this coming from yeah, it's, in high school? Yeah, it's, I mean, all of that came from my older brother, Ken. And I still remember, so I went up until this point, I really only listened to kind of acceptable Christian music. That's part of the reason why my brother and I would go to Cornerstone because we could find some like edgier stuff there that would be okay for us to bring home. Not that my parents were like crazy crackdown on it, but the first two albums I ever bought on cassette tape were Odelay by Beck, which blew my mind the first time I heard it. The first time I heard it, I was just like, this is, I mean, everybody had heard Loser and I yeah. remember that video on MTV and I always thought, I actually don't like that song at all. Really? And I always thought to myself, like, who is this guy? This is not music that I'll ever listen to. But the first time that I heard the song New Pollution, which is in my top 10 of, of all time, I was just like, this is so fun. And then if you watched back in the day, you couldn't, there wasn't YouTube. But now you can watch like his, D, his DJ was insane because he would be playing a show in his, what well, thing I loved about Beck is that he played all the instruments. He was kind of like Prince in that way. But then for his shows, he would have a DJ who would just like do these crazy things with the records and he would like flip them. And then every now and then he would like break one. And I remember my older brother showing me this like clip of his DJ thinking it was kind of my first exposure to the DJ. So in some ways, like Beck was a bridge to new music to me as well, because 
I had never seen somebody play music with two turntables, you know, two turntables and a microphone, right? <laughs> so that album was huge. I wish that I would have seen him live at some point. Dude, I, so I got to see him live. Did you really? Yeah. Ah. He, what? Granted, he opened for you too, but... Well, um, still. Uh, <laughs> it was, for an opening act, it was really enjoyable. Yeah. He had a lot of jam out sessions. Yep. Whoever his drummer is, whoa. Yeah. Outstanding. Yeah. And Ben Folds was right there too. That was the second cassette tape, whatever and ever, amen. And again, there's the piano. Yeah. Like here's, I, I remember hearing the song on the radio, Brick. Right. Which I, I learned how to play on the piano, of course. <laughs> like I went to the store and bought the music for Brick at the music store. But that album was like, oh, okay, you can play the piano and rock and roll. Right. And when I saw him live with the Foo Fighters, my first secular concert if you will you know he would throw his piano stool at the piano and like his piano was on like this thing that's rotated and it was just it was fun and entertaining and like the, i loved the fuzz bass of those early records they put like tons of distortion on the bass guitar and it was just kind of a fun contrast to the to like to the smooth piano right and again great great lyricist really really entertaining high energy lots of fun so actually those two are really more my discoveries and then depeche mode and the cure like my older brother was like in deep in the those kind of like house records of that time and he was my older brother is nine years older than me wow so he was always kind of like sending See, stuff back that makes sense mm -hmm. with timing that's right because he was into the cure and the depeche mode that's like early 90s yeah. or even late 80s yeah when those were at their those bands were at their prime yeah so and i was in high school from 94 to 98 so i was getting all of that but then kind of emerging at that time was built to spill and pavement and bjork yeah then he went off to college and i'm still thankful i probably have him somewhere i hope i kept him He's, he would send me these mixtapes and my older brother will probably never know how obsessed I was with him when I was in high school, but I would get one of those in the mail. And I mean, I would listen to it over and over and over and over again. And so there will always be a special part in my heart for Depeche Mode, for The Cure, for Bizarre Love Triangle and, you know, yeah. Blue Monday and, and the cocktail twins you know he was into all that stuff and wow. and i i mean i still i don't listen to that stuff near as much anymore but when i hear it like in a store or something i'm immediately queuing into it yeah as an important part of my my life that's awesome you mentioned ben folds but we didn't really talk about the foo fighters oh sure yeah any i think it's similar it's there for you yeah similar the you know, the video forever long came out on MTV. Like same, I mean, I'm like, a, and I'm a senior in high school yeah. and saw them on the color and shape tour. But it's funny because I, my love for the Foo Fighters didn't live on past that point. Okay. Like that was a high school record for me. And I still listen to it. I actually just listened to it like a couple months ago. Well, because my daughter's getting into music. So I'm just like, you need to know about the Foo Fighters. <laughs> so it's, it, it really, again, they had, three or four like big hits off that record yeah. in my junior and senior year of high school. And 
So it was, again, it was popular, but it was like also like alternative. Yeah. So it hit that like window for me. That's awesome. Yeah. Let's talk about college. You head to Indiana. I head to Indiana. Taylor University. College, which is funny because I headed away from Indiana. (laughs) As far away as possible. (laughs) Get me out of the state. Cheap gas, cheap cigarettes, but the rest of it is a little strange. (laughs) So I was there. In addition to being in Indiana, I was there in this like conservative evangelical Christian environment. How did that happen? Because you were... You're asking these deep questions, right? You're expanding your worldview. Mm -hmm. And then you end up... As a biblical literature major in the middle of a cornfield. (laughs) (laughs) So my brother and older brother and sister both went there. So, you know, I remember visiting them on campus. It's a beautiful campus. They both had good experiences there, even though my brother got kicked out for a little bit because it was very strict. Yeah. If I could go back in time, I don't think I'd end up at Taylor University. But at the time, like it was a, it was a place where, and I actually, when I first started college, I thought that I was going to be a physical therapist. So they wow. had a good physical therapy program. I had tore up my knee a couple of times in high school playing basketball. So I was like, you know, and then I did an internship with a physical therapist. I was like, oh, I like, I think I'd like to do this. My senior year of high school, I kind of had a I don't know, somewhat of a religious experience and decided that I wanted to kind of go more into more of a helping profession, either counseling or ministry. And so then Taylor was a nice fit for that. Fortunately, and I'm so thankful for this, I got placed on a floor full of a lot of people like me. Nice. And so then again, similar, we can talk about when I was in Israel as well, because I, I thought this through, I only took 10 albums with me to Israel. And I just, again, I listened to them on repeat the whole time I was there in a CD player, which yeah. doesn't exist anymore, yeah. a Walkman CD player. I got linked up pretty quickly with some cool people there. And then we spun off and did our own thing. And then it, and then it, that's when my worldview was able to kind of continue to go, continue to open, even in that environment. I graduated with a degree in biblical literature, but then I ended up here in Grand Rapids at the other way, which is a, it's an urban place. It was really trying to help people where they're at with compassion and respect and dignity. And so that's another movement in my life, but I don't think I would have gotten there without Taylor. So when I got to Taylor though, this was when BMG was a thing. And I remember getting, I don't know, 24 CDs for a dime or whatever. Dude. You're not the first person that has mentioned this. Yeah. And I'm just like, where was this? Where was this? I was yeah. in high school. I remember like combing through those catalogs, just being like, which, so yeah. in, in one hand, it also forced me to look at new music. Right. Because you, you would have to pick out a certain amount every month to make it worth it. Right. And so I remember some of the actual physical CDs that I still own. I would have never picked them had BMG not told me that I had to have 10 this month and I only had eight that I wanted. So then you throw something in that either my friends are listening to or that I wanted to try out more experimental stuff, which now it's so easy to just kind of experiment, right? Spotify does the work. Unfortunately, I think does the work for a lot of people, but it's easy to discover music, which is great. Also. Yeah. One of the things that I am, I do, 
find new artists to listen to every year of my life. And you know, that's not stopped for me. I didn't like get into a, into a rut and stay there. Like it just keeps on ever expanding. And that's one of the things that's beautiful about music is that one artist will lead to another, lead yeah. to another. And then all of a sudden I'm in a whole different genre. I like that. It's good for my brain. It's good for my, for building empathy for other people's experience. And it's more fun. I just think it's more fun. Yeah. I think you would get tired of hearing the same type of genre. You know, and my kids for... and my wife would get tired of it yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. Because I do get a bit hyper excessive. When I find something I like, I listen to it over and over <laughs> and over again. Like when Spotify gives me my top, you know, songs of the year. Yeah. And you look at how many times I play the top 10 or 15 on that list. And it's like obsessively many, <laughs> over a hundred sometimes. I just listen to the same song. On the so beat. there's a wide gap between the, the top 10 and the rest. Usually, yeah. Usually the top 10 are the ones that just like, for a while, I just put it on every day, several times a day, every time I'm in the car. Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying BMG. There yeah. Was there one of those examples where you just like, oh, let's try this. And then you started to really dive into. Yeah. I think for me, the BMG phase led me in two directions. One is obviously to hip hop. So my cousin, Evan, I was on a mission trip to Mexico and he put on the record quality by Talib Kweli and same kind of experience when I heard Beck's album for the first time. So I guess I could make this distinction. When I was in junior high and high school, I listened to rap music. Yeah. And this was my first exposure to hip hop music, which there is a difference there. And everybody draws those lines differently. But when I heard Quali, then I just went on this like complete rabbit hole down that kind of native tongues, De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, yeah. Most Def, you know, and then Most Def and Quali did Black Alicious which led me to Jean Grey, which led me to all these other things, Common. That, that's what I listened to in college. I actually was pretty stuck in, a, in The Roots. The Roots was huge. I, owned every, I, own, yeah. I own every Roots album. That okplayer.com realm, because so I just, at that same time is when okplayer.com kind of was launched. Could you explain to the audience what OK Player is? Yeah, so it, it was kind of those early groups, those native tongues groups. There, there was a platform for promoting their music, their brands, highlighting those musicians. It was a couple of labels. I'm going to blank on which ones. I know I'm trying to think of what label the Roots were on. Anyway, so they were they were promoting these artists and then they would promote with each other, which I thought was was pretty cool. And they were all they were all in that kind of like same genre of hip hop, even though there was great diversity within it. I would read that blog every single day in college. Wow. And that's how I got turned on to new music. To some degree, I haven't found a replacement for okplayer.com in my life. So I read Pitchfork. I still read Pitchfork every day. Pitchfork.com, similar thing. They do reviews of music, music news and things. I got it. I got it. <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> For me, my personal opinion of Pitchfork is utter snobs. Yeah. And, and it, it's hard to me to take something that's subjective and put it so objectively. Yeah. And that this is how it is. And we don't care what 
anybody else thinks yeah. kind of mindset or mentality. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what you're, I certainly, I certainly still feel that from them resist against it. There are a few albums that I love that they gave really low ratings. And I was just like, fuck you pitchfork. <laughs> Which ones do you remember? Oh, I don't remember at this moment. Although it may come to me because I still remember being like, what, 5.0? This is like an 8.5 at least. <laughs> but I do still learn, I prefer to come across new music from a place like that than like a Spotify recommendation. Sure. Yeah. I do still come across a lot of new music through Pitchfork. And so I am grateful for that. Now I'm mostly looking for reviews of stuff that I like and or reading an article about an artist that I'm into. Yeah. And I don't, I don't use it quite in the same way as I did in the early days where I was that back then I was probably wanting to be kind of snobbish about music. And so in some ways it played into that because I have an iPod with 80 gigs of music on it. <laughs> to some degree, I wanted to be a music snob and tell all my friends why they were wrong and I was right about music, yeah. which is silly, but because it is subjective and everybody likes different music and that's, what's great about it. Yeah. So the other direction I went with BMG is I remember buying the album by tortoise millions, millions are never living. will never die. The first track on there is Dijed and it's a 26 minute track and tortoise is this like jazz. It's like a jazz group. That is like they are the they are the precursor to post rock, right? Like they were it's all instrumental. It's super jazzy, but it's also like alternative at the same time. Their group is like 15 people. They're playing Chicago in October, and I'm like really hoping I can score a ticket because it's like on my bucket list of groups to go see. Wow. Because if you watch their live performances on YouTube, it's just there's so many people and it's so tight. It's all, it's also very weird music, Yeah, but that's what kind of moved me in the, in the direction of, of instrumental music that led me to explosions in the sky. And this really my, my favorite record of all time is this little EP called the firecracker EP by unwed sailor. So heard them at cornerstone at that time, David Bazan was the drummer. Oh, wow. And then the bass player was the same bass player of Roadside Monument. So like this is all insular. Yeah. There was this commune in Chicago called Jesus People USA. And a lot of artists lived in it together. And then they crossed, they were, they were in a bunch of different bands together. But it was all instrumental. It's called the Firecracker EP. Still to this day, like if I really need to focus on something for work, I put it on. It's 13 minutes long. It's four tracks. And it's just, it's a glorious piece of music in my life. So that's also like, I took the opportunity to start going in that direction, buying stuff that was punk bands, punk-ish bands, like the Appleseed cast is yeah. another one that I love. They put out the album Mare Vitalis and I saw them on that tour and it was such a live show. But then as they progressed on, then they put out Low Level Owl 1 and 2, which were almost all instrumental. And it was, it's basically similar to Explosions in the Sky, kind of same kind of genre. So I was watching some bands actually make that transition from feeling like they had to sing and have lyrics to having it all of a sudden be okay to put out an album that doesn't have any singing on it and that people were buying it. Right. And 
I remember listening to like early Appleseed cast and I'm just like, man, it would be great if he just wasn't singing. And then they did that and it was like, and it was perfect. Low Level Owl 1 and 2 are brilliant pieces of music. Do you think that's why those bands created the instrumental rock is because they didn't, they couldn't get a singer? Because they couldn't get a singer? Maybe, I don't know. I think but, that, I mean, it just became, you know, in some ways, like back in the day that being a jam band was a thing and that was okay. And people would just listen to a five minutes of, of you jamming. But then like, I don't know, something happened in the industry where they were, you, you had to like be confined to this. I think it was more like taking off the confinement of like a three minute song with a hook and a, and a verse to being able to just create, create a song that maybe had four movements in it in one song. It was interesting musically and sonically, but not, you know, you didn't have to worry about lyrics yeah. and trying to say something profound or singing because right. <laughs> not everybody's. I can't sing. If I ever made music, it would be instrumental. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. That would be interesting to explore. Yeah. Why people made that transition. It's so fascinating how in that late nineties time period, how so many other, I mean, cause it's not just explosions in the sky, right? There's so many other bands we could mention Yeah. from that time period that they were all trying that. Yeah. Whether it's Mogway. Yep. Mono. Yep. Mono. I love Mono. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's cigarettes even a little bit yeah. like, and the fact that they're coming from all over the world. That's right. Like yeah, mono with Japan. Yeah, Iceland with cigarettes. That's right. Scotland with yep. Magway. Yeah, and then Texas with yeah. So it just bizarre to me. I'm just always curious what made what made that like that a thing for a hot explode yeah. and be so global. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I got to imagine that some of it is just that people were buying it. And up until that point, I mean, because right, I own The Earth is Not a Cold Dead Place on CD. Yeah. But it wasn't too long after that Napster and then eMusic came out, which was like a pre-Spotify thing. And I had a subscription to eMusic. And so then I remember, like, again, I think some of it maybe was a timing thing. And then all of a sudden I like was listening to all this stuff that I would have never bought all of those albums. Yeah. And I wonder if that contributed to like the explosion of it. And then of course they got explosions was in that show Friday night lights. Like right. they did the soundtrack of that and that yeah. just like blew it up yep. pretty quickly. It's great movie soundtracks. Yeah. And it's not just explosions, but they've done multiple different movies. Yeah. Right. You know, original soundtracks. Yeah. Before them, you know, Brian Eno was before them and yeah. Tortoise was before them. You know, so there are some predecessors to that who were, but they weren't ever commercially successful. Right. They were all indie rock. They're indie bands that were basically just touring to get their music out there. Yeah. Well, there's, I forgot to mention Godspeed, You Black Emperor. Oh, yeah. I still remember I bought the album and the first time I listened to it, I was just like, this is really weird. <laughs> But then I just kept listening to it and I, and then I loved it. You know, I mean, I haven't kept up with their music past like their first two albums, but their first album I listened on heavy rotation in college, my college roommate and I were both into them. No, yeah. we kind of took a side step with the post rock yeah, with, sorry. with hip hop because mm -hmm. there's other artists that you really were connecting with. Yeah. So Lupe Fiasco. Mm -hmm. Nas, yeah. Kanye West. Yeah. Is that because I don't 
I feel like that's post BMG. Yeah, it is in, in some ways. So yeah, so I again I got into hip hop through you know the Native Tongues, De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, The Roots, which common. That reminds me of a question I wanted to ask. Those artists kind of fall into this like conscious, yeah, conscious hip hop, yeah, element where they're diving into deep, yeah you know, issues and subjects. It's still fun. It's still party rock at times, but it is also very much like speaking into the culture and what's happening right. in America, which I loved. And again, I think that the reason why I love hip hop music the most is that it gives me a glimpse into the experience of other people, which then helps me to shed my bias and privilege and the things that I've grown up believing are right and wrong. And the storytelling is incredible as well. But so it did kind of spring me off into hip hop that wasn't necessarily conscious, but it was it was definitely related, adjacent, maybe. There's uh, still yeah, I mean Kanye still was addressing Yeah, and his first album. Yeah. I mean it was Jesus Walks. Yeah. I mean Yeah. I there mean, was there was a lot out, there. He called out George Bush. He did. You know? <laughs> he did. <laughs> So I just watched this documentary on Netflix. It's fascinating the way that he progressed as an artist. And again, I've always loved Kanye as a producer first and a rapper second. And I still have kind of like this weird, like arm's length thing with him. But what Kanye turned me on to was like hip hop that was regional. So like there was always this East Coast, West Coast beef. And I, I tended to listen to more kind of New York hip hop. Right. I don't know why that is, but that's that's what I gravitated toward. Then all of a sudden, like, I'm just like, oh, there's a whole hip hop ecosystem in the city of Chicago. And that's when for me, when I started, and this was really in the last like five years of my life, really just when I'm looking for a new artist to listen to, I'm almost like geographically trying to find them because also I can drive to Chicago and go see a live show of somebody in an easier way than I can ever get out to Brooklyn or LA. Right. But I also think that the music comes from what's happening in the city. Chicago is this like, there's a lot going on in Chicago and that births good art. When there's a lot of pain, when there's a lot of suffering, when there's a lot of complexity and and issues that are coming to light, good art comes out of that fertile soil, if you will. Yeah. And then that they tend to be saying more, poignant things about the society that we're in. And that's why I, that's why I gravitate that. I love Lupe. I love Chance the Rapper. I love No Name. She's got two albums out now out of Chicago. Vic Mensa, Mick Jenkins, like that. The Chicago scene is pretty thick with really strong artists. I I didn't tell you this yet, but I, I actually saw Lupe Fiasco two, three months ago. Oh, really? Because he came out on stage with Coldplay. Oh, really? That's yeah. an interesting and they, and they played Superstar. Oh, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. It was He's so talented. For a while, I thought he was going to hang it up, but then he dropped an album last week or two weeks ago. Oh, really? He's got a new album out. It's pretty It's pretty great, too. I, I listened to it. I have. I was home alone for a couple of days, so I listened to it twice while I was had the house to myself and just <laughs> blasted real loud. So he's still making good music, but he's painting now. Like he's, yeah, he's, he's an interesting, he's also, his arc is interesting to me. Same with Chance the Rapper's arc. I think that when I look at how he came up with this group, this group called the Save Money Crew, 
But then there was Chance the Rapper and the Social Experiment. So he had this backup band that played with, that still to this day plays with him everywhere. And then they kind of share the backup musicians between these several different artists. And like this one group of artists made some amazing albums together. And it almost feels to me like when Motown was blowing up, there was a house band. Yeah. So, you know, Marvin Gaye would come in and he would sing his his wonderful hook, but he didn't play any of those instruments. The same house band played on all of those records. Right. I really loved the social experiment who came up with Chance the Rapper because they were doing the same thing. They were playing on each other's records and it, I don't know, there was kind of a sound that emerged from it that was pretty rich and well-developed and I love it. I love, I love that. Those artists. It's awesome. So I forgot to mention earlier that you actually lived in Israel during college. Talk about that experience. So my junior year, I went to Israel, Palestine, studied there for four months as a part of my degree. My dorm room was in the old city of Jerusalem. Like I had to walk through the Jaffa gate to get to my, my dorm room while I was there. And the place where I stood was a little youth hostel right inside the wall of the Jaffa gate. Oh my goodness. Incredible experience. The history is so deep and rich there. You know, every night over dinner, we were debating like serious, deep things about life and religion and what mattered. And ironically, it was, you know, it was a time of music because it was kind of one of the few things that I could bring with me to like keep touch me back home because we, again, back then, I mean, I just had gotten my first email address. Oh my goodness. You know, like I, like I, I, my mom showed me an email that I wrote to her from Israel when I was home last. And it's, it's hilarious the way that I talked then compared to the way I talk now and the way that I, what I shared with my mom and what I didn't share with my mom about my time there. Because we were, when I was there, we were under lockdown for two weeks. We couldn't leave because the Intifada, Ariel Sharon visited the Temple Mount. Nine people died that day. I remember sneaking out and we knew of this spot up above where we could kind of peek over the wall and see the wailing wall, which on top of it is the the mosque. Right. And there were ladders up on the wailing wall. There were IDF soldiers shooting rubber bullets into the crowd. Like it was just absolute chaos. We were playing ultimate Frisbee in the valley and we counted 18 ambulances go by. And then finally my friends and I were like, we got to go check out what's going on. That's That didn't make it into my letter to my mom. So we got up to this like high point where we could see. And it was just a chaotic scene. But also then during that lockdown, I have probably one of my favorite pictures ever taken of me. I had my headphones on and was listening to that Roadside Monument album, reading the paper that next day, because the newspapers were a thing back then too. Yeah. And I'm sitting there listening to this hardcore music because I was feeling we were, it was like a super intense time and reading the paper and, and just analyzing all the stuff that was going on there. Before he visited the Temple Mount and we were on lockdown and all that, we got to go to the Gaza Strip, which is, you know, where the occupation is. And we got to visit Palestinians in their encampments. And so you, you go to this stretch of land and the stretch of land is quite small. Like it's probably oh, it's tiny. Not even, it's probably like the size of Grand Rapids, you know, 45 square miles or so. 
but it, there's and so there's many. 13 Jewish settlements on it that take up 75% of that land. And then all of the Palestinians are just forced into these like tenement buildings. Yeah. And the next group that came, went to Israel after us didn't get to go visit there. We were one of the last groups to be able to get in and even just put eyes on it. But I remember coming back in terms of sparking like my passion for justice, but it was, it was really, it's a really tense place. Yeah. It's a really tense place. And I loved that though. Like, because it was, it was a formative time in my life. I, it was the kind of time in my life where I wanted to stay up till 3am debating the ins and outs of X. So other things that are happening post-college is you are starting to get into soul music. That's right. Yeah. And I'm fascinated that you are broadening into this. Explain what was going on. Yeah. So the, the entree into soul music was reading liner notes in my CDs that I listened to, which again, that one of the things that I lament about Spotify is that you never get to see the production credits on a, on a new album. But then I came across this DJ, DJ Parlay, who would make these example mixtapes. And all of a sudden I would be like, oh my gosh, that's, they took that song and then did this with it. And I just remember thinking that it was just incredibly creative and brilliant and a way of honoring the old music and like bringing new life to it. But then of course I got really into the original music because the reason why they sampled it is because it's great music. Yeah. And so it was DJ Parlay and then Mayor Hawthorne put out like 60 episodes, like DJ set lists. He's a DJ who out of Detroit and I would download his episode. And then I would, at that point I did have Spotify. So at that point I would download it, listen to his episode. Then I would find all of the ones that are there. And then some of them were like rare tracks that you couldn't find on Spotify. But then I would like have a YouTube playlist yeah. where I could go and find them and listen to or I could, I had them on my iPod so I could listen to them on my iPod. But I remember just thinking to myself, this is really the music that speaks the strongest to my soul. But the reason why I like hip hop is because they, its roots are in, in these other genres of music. I'm a big disco guy too. Like I, the disco phase of America was, I mean, just fun, lighthearted go dance the night away, fun music. And then also there was, there were these blogs that I read back in the day <laughs> and they would highlight a song. They would go digging for crates at a place, find something, put the audio file on the internet and I could listen to it. And then I would go listen to all the other music that that artist put out. And, you know, when I'm cooking in the kitchen, that's what I'm listening to. When I'm just chilling, I'm listening to soul music, you know, and it's my favorite soul group is the Isley Brothers, yeah. Smokey Robinson, the style. I love the style, like the high falsetto, the stylistics. And again, it's storytelling, it's music. Some of it has a social conscious to it, but most of it, it's just about life. It's about love. It's about relationships. It's, and it's, and it's gorgeous. The film that really turned me on to Motown is, well, there's the five heartbeats, which I love that film. And then there's, it's about the house band of Motown. Standing in the shadows of Motown is what it's Whoa. called. And so I got to check this out. This house band played on all the hit records and like nobody knows these people. Again, it wasn't Marvin Gaye playing that bass line. 
Uh, although I think Marvin Gaye did play drums on his track because I think he was a drummer. He played some piano too, I think. Yeah, I, so he was he was talented. Yeah. But it wasn't like, you know, Prince on his first two albums played every instrument, which is just my blows mind. Yeah. my mind. But this band, Standing in the Shadows of Motown, I think is the name of this documentary. And it's about the house band of Motown. And I mean, they just cranked out so many hits. Yeah. And again, like what was happening in America at that time that that music was able to flourish, similar to like the post-rock conversation, it really just blew the lid off. And there's something about that that's really intriguing and, and attractive to me too. So that's, I mean, that's kind of the, for me, that's where it ends. Like soul music is the stuff that speaks to me the most, but I love it all. You know, I love it all. I love Johnny Cash. I love, I love classical music. And that comes from like my mom kind of drilling in that into my heart and mind. And I'm thankful for it, even though back in the day I resisted against it a lot. Right. <laughs> and now, yeah. I mean, again, I just continue to just discover more music. And sometimes it's through Pitchfork. Sometimes it's through Spotify recommends something. But I, I'm really enamored by a lot of woman-led artists and groups right now. Two years ago, I got turned on to the group Haim. It's three sisters. I mean, yeah. they just make wonderful music together and they can harmonize together as right. sisters and they all play several instruments which i think is pretty cool so then heim like got me on to snail mail and soccer mommy and then last year the big album was uh, arush aftab which this pakistani woman i read the review on pitchfork it hit best new music and so i'm like all right this is a pakistani woman she, she sings all in, I think it's Arabic, and it is just so hauntingly gorgeous. But I've listened to that record so many times since it came out. Hmm. And there's just something about it that just transcends time and culture. Like, it really is. It's just beautiful. And, like, I mean, the if you look up the translations of the lyrics, they're pretty dark and depressing. So, so every now and then I'll... I'd be like, I wonder what she's saying right now. It sounds really, really sad. It's really, really sad <laughs> what she's singing. But again, like the that kind of beautiful music comes out of pain and suffering. Yeah. And I think that that's something that always has spoken to me. Like people who are able to articulate the pain and experience of other people so profoundly, it helps me to stay in touch with it. And because there's so many things that keep us kind of in a in a lane you're on your social media page and it's a bit of an echo chamber but what if you listen to different genres and types of music it, it just expands your brain and your consciousness to consider other viewpoints and other people's experiences which is why i read novels too yeah it's another way to build empathy that you can do at home that helps you to from getting locked in and i think that's one of the th that's some of the work that all of us need to be doing right now is how do i keep myself from getting locked in keep your mind open, keep your heart open to other people's experience. And for me, that's what, that's what music does. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious about soccer mommy. Oh um, yeah. I, I've really enjoyed ever since I listened to circle the drain mm -hmm. and then she just dropped a new album. Mm -hmm. Teamed up with she, another producer, maybe Portishead, I think from Portishead. Okay. Helped her with this new album. I mean, that would make sense. Yeah. And so that it has, it has a little bit more detail in the background. You know, she's a, She's a great singer songwriter, 
but working with it just adds another layer to the music that's that makes it more more interesting and more yeah. enjoyable well what what's fascinating too about her and her music that i'm reminded of earlier what we talked about is there are 90s elements mm-hmm. oh yeah in her songs yeah and sometimes it feels a little like sonic youthy yeah <laughs> yeah a lot there are even elements of some of that electronic mm-hmm. like the depeche mode yeah but a cure but it but it's more the garage yeah 90s yeah, yeah and i'm yeah. just is that a huge draw? I think why so. you got into her? I think it, it it brings it a little full circle. It brings back some of the stuff that I used to love in a new package. Yeah. And again, I think growing up, I didn't listen to, you know, women-led groups very often. You know, that wasn't what I gravitated toward. There wasn't a whole lot. There, and there wasn't a whole lot, right? So yeah. to have so many incredible artists have their chance to be out and sharing their music. And it's kind of like Cobra Kai comes back, right? It's like a little bit of nostalgia and also like it's, it's amazing at the same time. Like it definitely harkens that there's quite a few snail mail is the same way. Yeah. Her music sounds reminiscent of a lot of stuff that came out in the nineties to me anyway. Yeah. I feel like a lot of newer artists are diving into the nineties. Yeah. You know, material. It was a good time. Oh, I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm just saying it's interesting how 10 years ago, everybody was trying to do eighties. Yeah. Right. You know, it's evolving and now it's the nineties. And it's so it's just, yeah. Bizarre. It is bizarre. I think like, Oh, we're getting that old now. Yeah. I mean, pretty soon it's going to be the two thousands. Yeah. I mean, that's when it'll start to get really weird, but What is it about music that makes us enjoy it? Why do we as humans listen to music? For me, it's expression. I think I long to be a creative person and I long to be somebody who expresses myself. And when we hear other people do that, it's like it's permission to do it in our own way and whatever we're doing, you know, so I'm not a musician. I am a politician. I can bring that creativity and that expression to my work. Anytime that somebody like steps out and is courageous and does something new and different and is it's authentic, it gives me a permission to show up in the same way in the world. But man, it just, it calms me down. It's so great when I, again, if I'm feeling anger, I can match that energy with music and like burn off a little bit of steam. If I'm feeling sad, I can listen to Red House Painters and Mark Kozilek and just like wallow in that sadness for a bit. So it is, it also like, I think that it really, it helps me get in touch with emotion, gets out of my head, into my body and into my emotions. And, and then also, I mean, it's just fun. It's just fun. And the variety of it is so great. I think that it adds a lot of joy to life. I get inspired by people who put themselves out there. Yeah authentically and in some ways they're just like this is who i am love it or not i mean and then that that gives me permission to do the same thing in my life and like isn't that what we all want us to be free and to be able to express ourselves and what's important to us and our values and the way that we want to and you know musicians always have i've always had a chance to kind of like vicariously see other people put themselves out there And it it just kind of draws me forward in that way, which I love. Well, Kurt, 
Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. This was a blast. Uh, and uh, the exercise of pulling it together was worth, worth it in, in and of itself. So thank you for that. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack with Kyle Lichty. Each person interviewed has created a playlist of the very songs that have impacted their life. If you are interested in listening to their playlist, you can head straight to our website at soundtrack.fireside.fm. Click on Soundtrack Playlist, and it will take you straight to their playlist on Spotify. If you like the podcast and want to know more, check out our Instagram at Soundtrack Podcast, or leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Join us next time on Soundtrack. Soundtrack.